Father, us great. It's great to lift my voice and be surrounded by the other voices here. Just kind of caught up in that. Thank you for the privilege of doing that. Place to come here together, together. Thank you for the relationships, the friendships uh, that are here. Thank you for your spirit that is here. Those gifted in music, thank you for your word that we have. That we're going to look into a few minutes here. It's really, it's really an honor, Lord. I'm just aware as many places around the, the globe, even today, that it's against the sanctioned laws of areas that this is... They cannot do this. They don't have the freedom to come and worship you according to the dictates of their heart. Pray for strength for them, faithfulness. Got to pray for us here in the midst of really a great abundance compared to the world. In the midst of comfort and ease, that we would not become complacent and apathetic and spiritually lethargic. We would be on fire for you, God, for your name, for your glory. Yeah. Would you spread your fame in greater and greater measure? across this city because of the influence of this church. I'm asking you to do that one heart at a time. For your glory only. I'm asking you to do that with every Christ-centered, Bible-believing church in this city. Almost 300 of them in a city of 300,000. 90% Every Sunday morning, vote by staying at home that church is not relevant. God, help us to figure out how to share the love and the grace and the truth of Christ to go to them with that truth. Just as you have already done, we ask that you'd continue to meet us here in power. Manifest your, your presence here. Take your truth and use it as a, as a sharpened sword this morning. Not to damage, but to protect and to cut through doubts and lies and to cut out cancer, spiritual cancer where it's needed and cut right to the point where that's needed and just to do a mighty work here. Thank you that your truth is able and your spirit is here. Keep me out of the way. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just do a moment of 
kind of housekeeping here. I'm going to read a passage out of Titus. This is what Paul said to this young pastor. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We have, as an elder board, been looking for, praying for God to raise up some additional men in our church that He is putting here as elders. We can identify who those men are and present them to the body as shepherds over the body. And we have two men that we are going to be presenting to you, one this week and one next week. And the way our polity, our church government works here, and that is that we as elders present uh, a gentleman for the, I, for the office of elder and have at least a 30-day window before a meeting. We have an annual meeting coming up on November the 6th. And at that meeting, as part of that meeting, we'll have a vote of affirmation uh, regarding these two elders. You have from now until November the 6th just to be praying for and encourage you. I encourage you. I encourage you to do that, that God would establish these two men, if it is His will that they be established. If you are aware of anything that would give us pause there, you need to communicate that uh, to one of the elders in the church body, and we will research that and make sure that we get to the bottom of that, and we're going to look into the character of these two men. John Patton is one of those. John, would you come up here? John has been on staff here for, I think, approximately 14 months. Is that about right, Pastor John? Been Been an incredible blessing for me to walk alongside this man here. And so I've just asked him to take a few minutes and to share from his heart a little bit so that you, if you don't know him, get to know him a little better. Is Ani out here or is she working? Would you stand, Ani? Thank you. Wave your hand. I want everybody to see the better half here. Okay. This is a very humbling position to be in. I say that with all sincerity. Appreciate, Brad, you reading the scripture from 1 Timothy 3. Uh, That of an elder is a noble task. I checked to see precisely what that means. It is of high hereditary rank. That is not me in the physical. I was not born into a family with high hereditary rank. I don't belong to some club or organization that lifts me up. I was simply reborn into the same high hereditary rank that every one of us has option of being reborn into, and that is a life in Jesus Christ. I believe this is, being an elder, is a calling of every man. Now, you may shrink back and say, whoa, that's not me. Well, if we are a dad in a home, or we aspire to that, or we have that kind of influence on other people, we're basically an elder for them. 
and uh, we need to take this seriously. With firm humility, I identify from Scripture three basic responsibilities of the elder. One is to teach, to teach the truth. Secondly, and with humility, to live as an example. And thirdly, it is the elder's responsibility to protect, to protect the flock or to protect his family. I would add two footnotes to these points. One, that of an elder is not a solo assignment. Nowhere in scripture do we see that a singular elder was appointed or a single elder ruled or had that responsibility. In the common vernacular of today, I would say being an elder is being a part of a band of brothers. It's a task, a job that we do together. And second footnote, I think the church defines for us that a it is an organization, excuse me, an organism. I'm glad I made the mistake because I want to make sure you get it. The church is a living, breathing, hearing, functioning organism. We are Christ's body. It is not an organization. That doesn't mean that a living, breathing <coughs> body doesn't need some organization. But first and foremost, we are the body of Christ, a living organism. Thank you. Hey, what's the deal? You don't clap when I preach. <laughs> By the way, I, I kind of just sitting there singing. I meant to do this this morning here. I just want to shake everybody's hand here on the front row <laughs> because <laughs> normally I think I must have changed my deodorant this morning or something because this is usually like the death zone here, but we actually have some people on the front row. Okay. A puzzle is a picture in pieces. If the picture of the puzzle is a picture of incredible beauty, then it stands to reason that the pieces of that puzzle are little pieces of beauty. There are probably at least two strong opinions in this room here, two camps of people related to puzzles. There's probably a group that is entertained by puzzles, and there's probably a group that is exasperated by puzzles. But for either group, there is a lesson in a puzzle. There's really a, a profound lesson for life that you can learn whether you are being entertained or you are being exasperated. There is a great lesson 
Let me just state it for you. The lesson of a puzzle, the lesson of life for a puzzle is this, that to see the big picture, you must take the time to find out how the individual pieces fit together. To see the big picture, you must take the time to find out how the individual pieces fit together. Paul's letter to the church at Rome, I am convinced I would be so bold as to say I know that it is the greatest portrait ever painted in God's museum of truth, incomparable portrait of the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is, it's like the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci in the Louvre in Paris. It is like Vincent van Gogh's painting, Sunflowers, in the National Gallery in London. It's like Michelangelo's statue of David, that 17-foot tall granite statue that looks alive. I believe that the letter to Rome serves a, a place of preeminence, a chief place in God's museum of truth, painting a picture of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is true of a puzzle, the lesson of a puzzle, is that you have to take the time to look at each individual piece and find out how those pieces fit together. Because the pieces go in a specific order, in a specific place, for a specific purpose. And it is as you take the time to put it together that the beauty of this portrait beyond compare, it's then that it can grip your heart and overwhelm you in the depth of its love and its grace. That is why we have been piece by piece, closely, carefully, thoughtfully been working to put this puzzle together, this portrait beyond compare. And just like in the work on a puzzle, just like the pieces around the piece you are trying to place, the pieces around that piece,
peace give understanding work seamlessly together to bring out the beauty and the intent of that one piece. It needs the context of the pieces around it. In the very same way, the piece of the puzzle that we are looking at today, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. That piece of the puzzle, it is very, very critical to understand the pieces that surround it because only when we do will we grasp the meaning and the purpose and see the beauty of the piece of Romans 6, 3. So let me just begin by backing up a little. Back just two verses to the beginning of Romans chapter 6, verse 1. The immediate context surrounding peace to Romans 6, 3. What Paul does as he opens Romans chapter 6, verse 1, is that he begins by highlighting a common error and a common objection that people have to his gospel of Jesus Christ that he preaches. This gospel that says the grace of God cannot be bought, cannot be worked for, cannot be earned by good works, that this gospel of Jesus Christ is only, only given as a free gift based upon the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that the only way that gift can, can become yours is if you humbly recognize your need and in faith put your trust in the one who has made it possible. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. If you do, it's a very insult to the grace of God that came at the cost of the death of His Son. There was objection, a common error, and a common objection to that truth. Let me tell you what they were. First of all, the common error. The common error said this, wow, if grace is free, I mean, if there is absolutely nothing that I can do to earn it, in fact, Paul, if what you just said back a little further at the end of Chapter 5 is true. If when sin increases, grace superabounds, grace rises up in victory over sin, then man, what I hear you saying is that we should go out and sin so that grace would increase. That's a common error. He states that directly in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say? Shall we sin so that grace may increase? You see, he's identifying a common objection or a common error that people draw from his teaching. And the error is this. They want to use the grace of God as a license for sinful living. Then there is another group that's on the other side of the coin, but they're dealing with the same reality. And this is the group that takes objection to the gospel. This is the group that says, Paul... 
You're saying that it's all of grace, that it's absolutely nothing that we can do to earn it. In fact, that our good works are like filthy rags, worthless, should be thrown out, discarded on the junk heap. What you're going to do, Paul, is if you keep promoting that, you're going to cause two great errors. Here's the first error. You are going to encourage people to do the wrong. It's as if this group points back to the first group and says, Paul, case in point, those guys right over there, those people who are wanting to use the grace of God as a license to sin, That's the error that you cause. But Paul, that's not only all. Not only do you encourage people to do the wrong, you discourage them to do the right. You discourage them from good works because you are just totally nullifying good works as having any merit whatsoever. So if you are saying that good works plays no part, then why in the world would we want to participate or would anybody that believes that want to participate in good works? You're just stripping all the motivation away. Encouraging the wrong, discouraging the right. That is some responses that Paul had to the preaching of his gospel. Isn't it telling that those are the same responses today that some people have when the pure, unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached. It's always been an issue. So what did Paul do? How did Paul correct the error and refute the objection? Well, what he did is he began in verse 2 after stating it. And he made a profound statement in verse 2. We looked at this last week. I'm not going to unpack it again. But he, he made this propositional truth, this great statement of truth that said this, we died to sin. And actually, what takes place, the rest of Romans 6 2 down to verse 14, all the rest of that is really a commentary on the statement, we died to sin. So what he does in verse 3 is he begins to dive into that statement a little bit as if we ask this question based upon verse 2, we died to sin. The question that rises up and begs to be answered is this. What does that mean? We died to sin. In what way is it true that the believer dies to sin? So what Paul does is he answers that question in Romans 6, 3 to 11. And here is the answer. Let me just state it. I'll spend the rest of the morning explaining it. The answer to the question, how is it that the believer dies to sin? In what way does that happen? And here is the answer. They are unified or united to Jesus Christ. They are united to Jesus Christ. 
I pray that by the end of this morning, you will understand what that statement means, at least better than you do now. Let me read Romans 6, 3, and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul here refers to the connection between the Christian and three things in those two verses, between the Christian and Christ's death, between the Christian and Christ's burial, and the connection between the Christian and Christ's resurrection. All 14 of these verses of chapter 6, 1 through 14, it is all about the big idea of our union with Christ, our union with His death, our union with His burial, and our union with His resurrection. That's going to be the track that we run on in the weeks to, to come here. But go back now to the opening illustration, to the illustration of the beautiful portrait here that Paul has painted and the connection of the puzzle. What is absolutely necessary in order for us to understand Romans chapter 6, verse 3, to look at this beautiful piece of truth from this masterful portrait of the gospel of God's grace. In order for us to understand that, we have to see how it fits with the pieces that have just been put in place. That we will not understand the beauty of this piece, that it will find its illumination, its revelation, as it is directly connected to the pieces that just preceded it. And so let me tell you what that key piece is. I believe the key piece. It is Romans 5, 12 to 21. In Romans 5, 12 to 21, Paul begins a new section in his letter. Let me point it out for you because it's easy to miss. Previous to Romans 5.21, in Romans 1, in Romans 2, and in Romans 3, Paul was talking over and over, and if you've been at this church for a while, you probably got sick of hearing this because I talked about it over and over and over again, and it was this, our sins. Paul hammered and hammered and hammered on the reality that we are sinners. But then he gets to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and he makes a transition, and he no longer is talking about sins. He's talking about sin, singular. Romans, up to Romans 5, 11, the conversation has been the fruit of that, the actions of sin, the practice of sin. Romans 5, 12 comes the principle of sin. Pre-5.21, 
5.11 is the fruit. 5.12 to 5.21 is the root. And what he does in that passage is he begins by telling us that we, all we, all humanity, all time, all generations are connected to Adam, that Adam is our federal head. He is our representative head, that in Adam we have expression in the eyes of God, and that what Adam did in the garden, when Adam took of the tree and he ate of the fruit, that he had been directly forbidden by God to eat from. Paul is so clear. He says that multiple times in 12, 5, 12 down to 21, he said that when Adam did that and committed that sin, he was condemned for that, and so were we. That in Adam's sin, we were condemned. In fact, in Adam's sin, we sinned. I mean, we weren't there we weren't born, we weren't even an idea yet except in the eyes and the mind of God. But when Adam committed that sin in the garden, in that moment, we participated in that with him as our representative federal head and we were judged, guilty as charged. And what happened then is that we entered into this world under a curse, under the bondage of sin, under the domain of sin, being controlled and enslaved by sin, acting out according to the nature of sin that had been given to us so that we committed sins. But the problem was the sin, singular. Now, that's not the main point of Romans 5, 12 to 21. That's just a supporting point. That's just meant to set the stage so that Paul could do this. There's another Adam. There is another second Adam called the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to paint this picture between Adam and Christ. And he uses this language, this comparative, contrasting language back and forth here, just as even so, just as even so, just as Adam's sin brought condemnation upon you and guilt, even so, Christ's one act of righteousness, his one act of sacrifice unto death, that one act opens the door for you to receive complete justification, not because of anything that you have done, not because of anything that you deserve, just like Adam's sin brought you condemnation when you had no involvement. Christ's acts of righteousness can bring you justification. And with that justification, the bondage to sin is gone. You no longer are under the domain of sin. But what happens is that grace rises up. Where sin increases, a new king stands up and takes authority over the king of sin and death and defeats that sin. Where sin increases, grace superabounds. That's what he says at the end of chapter 5. And he just paints this incredible picture that 
what Adam lost for us, this garden, this place of utopia, this wonderful relationship with the Father, with the Creator, in which there was intimacy and walks in the cool of the day, what Adam jeopardized and lost for us in that, Christ came to restore. Oh, but not only to restore. He came to take us not only to the garden, but way beyond the garden. He came not only to set us as co-regents over this earth, He came to make us co-regents of heaven, reigning with Christ forever, seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, there is this incredible picture that He paints here, and it's all about union with Christ. You are either united to Adam, guilty, condemned, judged, or you are connected and united to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, through faith. Totally outside of anything that you did. And if you're united to this second Adam, there is justification, righteousness, grace and abundance in a superabounding outpouring. That's the context piece that the piece of Romans 6, 3 and those cool little shapes of puzzles that just fits right together and locks in. And then the two begin to interpret themselves. They begin to express and show you the picture of the beauty of the grace of God. And Paul says here, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Key word that I want to point out here is the word baptism, just for a moment. I think it's important to understand this so that you don't misunderstand this. I am absolutely convinced Paul is not talking here about water baptism. It does not make sense with the context. Remember, context needs to interpret text. The direct statement right in the verse is this, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. Just the very illustration does not seem to connect in my mind because what kind of a death did Christ die? He died the death of a crucifixion. He was raised up and nailed to a cross and hung up and exposed. That does not seem to connect with the illustration of baptism. Specifically here in verse 3. But much more important than that, it does not seem to fit at all with the teaching of the New Testament. That Paul is talking here about water baptism. Let me just give you a verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. Paul taught this, that God being rich in mercy because of His great love for us made us alive together with Christ Listen to the similar language here in Romans 6, 3, and 4. He raised us up with Him, seated him, us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There's no talk there at all about water baptism. 
I mean, we can, I can just give you a lot of different scriptures that talk about what takes place here without any connection to water baptism. But here's the, here's the strongest point, is that the direct context seems to indicate that Paul is not talking here about water baptism, and here is why. He has just spent five in-depth chapters teaching over and over and over and over again that you can do nothing to be saved. That salvation, justification is completely separate from any work whatsoever. That it is only of God and of God's grace. You don't participate with God in the process of being saved. It is all His work exclusively. And then if he came to Romans 6, 3 and said, oh, by the way, you have to get water baptized to be saved. That just does not make consistent sense with the context of the entire letter. So what kind of baptism is he talking about? Let me give you the commentary on it. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Simple clear explanation says this, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. By one spirit we were baptized into one body. What this is referring to is what takes place when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is involved in the process of your justification. He takes you and He baptizes you into the body of Christ. He joins you with Christ. He unites you with Christ. There's the doctrine of the union of Christ that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6 that he's been talking about in Romans 5, 12 to 21. It is the work of the Spirit to take the believer in Christ in the moment that they believe and apply the work of Christ to them but actually baptize them into Jesus Christ. In order to clear out the clutter and bring the clarity, let me just explain a few things that it does not say here. It does not say that you were baptized by Christ or through Christ or for Christ or unto, but it says what? It says into. It says into. The doctrine of the union with Christ that the believer experiences as a part of justification, as a part of salvation, is one of the most absolute, critical, foundational truths of the good news about Jesus Christ. Let me just highlight that by Paul's opening statement here in 6.3. Paul says, do you not know? Now, it seems to me 
that Paul is implying something here. And here is what I hear him implying. You know this, right? I mean, obviously, you know this. Haven't you heard this great truth? I would be shocked if you did not know this truth. This is not new stuff, Romans 6.3. Paul thinks he's giving to this church at Rome. It seems to me what Paul is implying here, number one, is that union with Christ is a foundational truth of Christianity. That union with Christ is a foundational truth about Christianity. Now let me make that even more apparent. To which church is he writing this letter? Church of Rome. Which church had Paul never been to? The church of Rome. If Paul was writing this to the church of Galatia or the church of Corinth, then we might say, well, Paul certainly would expect them to know this foundational truth. He's passionate about it, and clearly when he was there and he taught them, he put this truth in place, and so he's saying to them, come on, don't you remember what I taught you about this? But here's a church he's never been to. Here's a church that he didn't put the foundational stones in place. Here's a church that somebody else started that he has never visited even. And yet, in writing to this church, Paul is saying or implying, certainly you know this foundational truth about Christianity, which is this. You are united with Christ in Christianity or in justification. You are actually connected directly to him. That's the first thing that I see him saying. Here's the second. He says, do you not know that some of us, is that what he said? All of us. Do you not know that all of us, here's the second truth, that union with Christ is a comprehensive truth about Christianity. It's not just a foundational truth. It's a comprehensive truth. It is the truth about every single believer. That every single believer is united, is in union with Christ. That's true of the poor as much as it is of the rich. It's true of the weak as much as it is of the strong. It's true of the slow as much as it is of the smart. It's true of the Arminian as much as it is of the Calvinist. It's true of the believer who is spiritually floundering, and it's true of the spirit-filled believer. It's just true of the true believer, that they are united, they are in direct union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the third truth. It says, do you not know that all of us were baptized? What, church? What's the word? Say it again. Into. 
Yeah, it's not baptized by. That would be a statement of proximity. It's not baptized through. That would be a statement of a transient kind of move through. It's not for. That would be a statement of purpose. It's not unto. That would be a statement kind of as a direction or moving. The statement is that we were baptized into. That we were actually put into. That the Spirit of God did this unbelievable, amazing thing in justification. He actually took you and He put you right into the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where he intended you to be. That's where you remain forever in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad three people are excited about that. You see, Paul is telling us that in justification, it's not just the fact that our sins are no longer held to our account. It's not just that we are removed from the guilt of our sins. The reality of justification is that you are taken and you are put right into the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that you have a relationship with the Father like unto the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that is hard to believe. That's hard for me to believe. But that's the truth of the teaching of Scripture. That means that all of the blessings of Christ are yours if you're in Christ. All of them. That all of the blessings that he gets as being the second member of the Trinity, that those blessings flow to you because when they flow to him, where are they coming? They're coming right to you because where are you? You're in him. You're in him. Just as, remember the picture, remember the puzzle pieces, the context. Just as we experience in Adam sin and all of the fallout of condemnation and slavery and dominion under the evil taskmaster and the sinful nature and bondage, just like so as. Just like Jesus Christ, we experience justification and freedom from sin and joy and the dominion of grace instead of the dominion of sin, just as, like unto. So when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, listen, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, dot, dot, dot. 
Here's the point. When you were baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 3, you weren't baptized into a part of Jesus. He became all of Jesus to you. All of Jesus to you. Not some of Jesus that you're going to get into later. You're going to experience more of it, but in the moment of your justification, in the moment of the Spirit's baptizing you into the Lord Jesus Christ, you were fully put into the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of Him became available to you right there at that moment. Redemption, justification, sanctification, the wisdom of God. So that as Paul said, in Romans 6, 3, that in baptism by the Spirit, we were baptized into His death, into His death, into His death. How many deaths to sin did Jesus have to die? One death. In fact, the Bible is explicit he who died to sin can die to it no longer. He is done with it. It is over for him. Jesus, in his death, he completely changed his reality. He had entered into the sphere of this world in the incarnation to step into this world so that he could provide for us salvation through his sacrificial atoning death. And so he lived in that environment. He lived under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. When the time had fully come, Jesus was born of a woman, born under law. But when he died, he died to sin. That relationship was done. No more was he under the law. No more was he living in that relationship anymore that he had stepped in to save us. Now that was completed and finished. He died to that. And when he died to it, who else died to it? You did. You were buried with him in his baptism into his death. What? Thank you. Did I get a little bit of John's clapping there? That is so incredible. You can't die to sin if you're in Christ because that death happens only one time. And it was an all-sufficient death that took care of all of your sin. Oh, isn't that's, folks, that's just the first little sliver of what he is unpacking here in this section. Just the first little piece. He goes on in verse 4 to talk about being buried with him in baptism and being raised with him to newness of life. We're going to be looking at that in the weeks to come. But all of this section is a commentary, is an outflowing on Romans 5, 12 to 21, where he taught us the principle of oneness, of unity with Christ. And now he's telling us what that unity means. And the first thing that it means is that we died to sin. 
And what that means is that we were buried with him in baptism into his death. We died to sin. In his death, just like Adam sinned and brought our guilt and condemnation and death into the world, in Christ's death, we died with him and we get his life and his grace. Oh, that's an incredible, incredible doctrine. So that, let's wrap this up now. So that as you put these pieces like that together, and the picture is comes into view of the incomparable portrait of the glory of the grace of God in the Son, that it causes us to look at it if we spend the time to see each piece and figure out how it fits together. We step back and take a gasp when we see the beauty of the picture. Is it any wonder that Paul would say in Romans chapter 6 verse 2, how in the world can you even suggest that we would sin more because of grace? That makes me sick. That's a repulsive thought. When you understand the beauty of the grace of God. It is a picture that compels you to live for the glory of the one who did that for you. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, the Bible says. It's the kindness of God that does that, that motivates us, that breaks down our resistance and draws us to the Savior. It's the kindness of God. What I encourage you to do, I'm going to be... Actually, uh, my father and my two sons and I, we've been asked by Fish and Game to help them with a little bit of their game management problem over the next couple weeks. So, I'm going to be gone for a few Sundays. Got some great preaching planned for you. I encourage you, though, in the next couple of weeks, spend some time meditating on, looking into God's Word here and elsewhere about union with Christ. Ask Him to show you and teach you what that means. To open up that picture of the beauty that Paul is painting here of the grace of God. Would you please stand? Obviously, the application point for you is if you are a follower of Christ, this should motivate you not to sin more so grace can increase, but to run toward God, to live for God's glory, and to take as many people with you as you can. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, 
but the truth has penetrated your heart and you're saying, I'd like to be. How does that happen? It's, it's all been provided. It's free. You just recognize your sin and in brokenness just come to the one who died for you and say, Jesus, I, I believe in you. Believe that what you've done is enough. And I want you to save me and I want to surrender my life to you. I want you to be my Lord. I want to live every day for you. I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. I'll sing a song. Father, Wow, I am so, I'm so taken back. I, not at all anything about me, about how you put your word together. It is an awesome, awesome thing. Thank you. Help me to Help us to, by looking at these ever-developing pictures of the glory of your grace in your Son, that it would sweep through our life. It would consume our apathy and lethargy. It would burn up the chaff. It would... Heat up our resolve so that we would run toward you and your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.